Problem 3. How do the nomads invent or find their weapons? Proposition 8. Metallurgy in itself constitutes a flow necessarily confluent with nomadism. The political, economic and social regime of the peoples of the steppe are less well known than their innovations in war in the areas of offensive and defensive weapons, composition of strategy, the technological elements, the saddle, the stirrup, the horseshoe, the harness. History contests each innovation, but cannot succeed in effacing the nomad traces. What the nomad invented was the man-animal weapon, man-horse-bow assemblage. Through this assemblage of speed, the ages of metal are marked by innovation. The socketed bronze battle axe of the Hyksos and the iron sword of the Hittites have been compared to miniature atomic bombs. It has been possible to establish a rather precise periodization of the weapons of the steppe, showing the alternation between heavy and light armament, the Scythian type and the Sarmatian type, and their mixed forms. The cast steel sabre, often short and curved, a weapon for side attack with the edge of the blade, envelops a different dynamic space than the forged iron sword for frontal attack using the point. It was the Scythians who brought it to India and Persia, where the Arabs would later acquire it. It was commonly agreed that the nomads lost their role as innovators with the advent of firearms, in particular the cannon. Quote, gunpowder got the better of their rapidity, end quote. But it was not necessarily because they did not know how to use them. Not only did armies like the Turkish army, whose nomadic tradition remained strong, develop extensive firepower, a new space, but additionally, and even more characteristically, light artillery was thoroughly integrated into mobile formations of wagons, pirate ships, etc. If the cannon marks a limit for the nomads, it is on the contrary because it implies an economic investment that only a state apparatus can make. Even commercial cities do not suffice. The fact remains that for weapons other than firearms, and also even for the cannon, there is always a nomad to be seen on the horizon of a given technological lineage. Obviously each case is controversial. The great discussion on the stirrups are an example. The problem is that it is generally difficult to distinguish between what comes from the nomads as such and what they receive from the empire with which they communicate, which they conquer or integrate with. There are so many grey areas, intermediaries and combinations between an imperial army and a nomad war machine that it is often the case that things come from the empire first. The example of the sabre is typical, and unlike the stirrup, there is no longer any doubt although it is true that the Scythians were the propagators of the sabre, introducing it to the Hindus, Persians and Arabs, they were also its first victims. They started off on the receiving end. It was invented by the Chinese Empire of the Qin and Han dynasties, the exclusive master of steel casting or crucible steel. This is a good example to use to bring out the difficulties modern archaeologists and historians have. Even the archaeologists are not immune from a certain hatred or contempt for the nomads. 
In the case of the sabre, where the facts already speak sufficiently in favour of an imperial origin, the best of the commentators finds it fitting to add that the Scythians could not have invented it at any rate, poor nomads that they were, and that crucible steel necessarily came from a sedentary Minlu. But why follow the very old, official Chinese version, according to which deserters from the imperial army revealed the secrets to the Scythians? And what can revealing the secret mean if the Scythians were incapable of putting it to use, and understood nothing of all that? Blame the deserters, why don't you? You don't make an atomic bomb with a secret, any more than you make a saber if you are incapable of reproducing it and of integrating it under different conditions, of transferring it to other assemblages. Propagation. Diffusion. They're fully part of a line of innovation. They mark a bend in it. On top of that, why say that crucible steel is necessarily the property of sedentaries or imperial subjects when it is first of all the invention of metallurgists? It is assumed that these metallurgists were necessarily controlled by a state apparatus, but they also had to enjoy a certain technological autonomy and social clandestinity, which means that, even controlled, they do not belong to the state any more than they themselves, uh, any more than they were themselves nomads. There were no deserters who betrayed the secret, but rather metallurgists who communicated it and made its adaptation and propagation possible, an entirely different kind of betrayal. In the last analysis, what makes the discussion so difficult, both in the controversial case of the stirrup and in the definite case of the sabre, are not only the prejudices about the nomads, but also the absence of a sufficiently elaborated concept of the technological lineage. What defines a technological line or continuum and its variable extension from this or that point of view? It would be useless to say that metallurgy is a science because it discovers constant laws, for example the melting point of a metal at all times and in all places, for metallurgy is inseparable from several lines of variation, variation between meteorites and indigenous metals, variation between ores and proportions of metal, variation between alloys, natural and artificial, Variation between the operations performed upon a metal. Variations between the qualities that make up a given operation that make it possible, or that results from a given operation. For example, 12 varieties of copper identified and inventoried at Sumer by place of origin and degree of refinement. All these variables can be grouped under two overall rubrics. Singularities or spatio-temporal hecaities of different orders and the operations associated with them as process of deformation or transformation. Affective qualities or traits of expression of different levels which correspond to these singularities and operations, hardness, weight, colour, etc. Let us return to the example of the sabre, or rather of crucible steel. It implies the actualization of a first singularity, namely the melting of the iron at high temperature, then a second singularity, the successive decarbonations corresponding to these singularities are traits of expression, not only the 
hardness, sharpness, and finish, but also the undulations or designs traced by the crystallization and resulting from the internal structure of the cast steel. The iron sword is associated with entirely different singularities, since it is forged and not cast or moulded, quenched and not air-cooled, produced by the piece and not in number. Its traits of expression are necessarily very different, because it pierces rather than hues, attacks from the front rather than from the side, and even the expressive designs are obtained in an entirely different way, by inlay. We may speak of a machinic phylum, or technological lineage, wherever we find a constellation of singularities, prolongable by certain operations which converge and make the operations converge upon one or several assignable traits of expression. If the singularities or operations diverge in different materials or in the same material, we must distinguish between two different phylums. This is precisely the case for the iron sword, descended from the dagger, and the steel sabre, descended from the knife. Each phylum has its own singularities and operations, its own qualities and traits, which determine the relations of desire to the technical element. The affects of the sabre, quote-unquote, has. The affects that the sabre has are not the same as those of the sword. But it is always possible to situate the analysis of on the level of singularities that are prolongable from one phylum to another, and to conjoin the two phylums. At the limit, there is a single phylogenetic lineage, a single machinic phylum, ideally continuous, the flow of matter movement, the flow of matter in continuous variation, conveying singularities and traits of expression. This operative and expressive flow is as much artificial as natural, it is like the university, excuse me, it is like the unity of man and nature. But at the same time, it is not realized in the here and now without dividing, differentiating. We will call an assemblage every constellation of singularities and traits deducted from the flow, selected, organized, stratified in such a way as to converge, consistency, artificially and naturally. An assemblage in this sense is a veritable invention. Assemblages may group themselves into extremely vast constellations, constituting cultures or even ages. Within these constellations, the assemblages still differentiate the phylum or the flow, dividing it into so many different phylums of a given order on a given level and introducing selective discontinuities in the ideal continuity of matter movement. The assemblages cut the phylum up into distinct differentiated lineages, at the same time as the machinic phylum cuts across them all, taking leave of one to pick up again in another or make them coexist. A certain singularity embedded in the flanks of the phylum for example, the chemistry of carbon will be brought up to the surface by a given assemblage that selects, organises, invents it, and through which all or part of the phylum passes, at a given place or a given time. 
we may distinguish in every case a number of very different lines. Some of them phylogenetic lines travel long distances between assemblages of various ages and cultures. From the blowgun to the cannon, from the prayer wheel to the propeller, from the pot to the motor. Others, ontogenetic lines, are internal to one assemblage and link up its various elements, or else cause one element to pass, often after a delay, into another assemblage of a different nature, but of the same culture or age. For example, the horseshoe, which spread through agricultural assemblages. It is thus necessary to take into account the selective action of the assemblages upon the phylum and the evolutionary reaction of the phylum as the subterranean thread which passes through from one assemblage to another, or quits an assemblage, draws it forward and opens it up. Vital impulse? It is Le Roi Goran who has gone the furthest towards a technological vitalism, taking biological evolution in general as a model for technical evolution. A italics, universal tendency. Laden with all of the singularities and traits of expression, traverses technical and interior milieus which refract or differentiate it in accordance with the singularities and traits each of them retains, selects, draws together, causes to converge, invents. There is indeed a machinic phylum in variation which creates the technical assemblages, while the assemblages invent the various phylums. A technological lineage changes significantly according to whether one traces it upon the phylum, or inscribes it in the assemblages. But the two are inseparable. So how are we to define this matter movement, this matter energy, this matter flow, this matter invariation, which enters assemblages and leaves them? It is a de-stratified, de-territorialized matter. It seems to us that Husserl brought upon a decisive step forward when he discovered a region of vague and material essences. In other words, essences that are vagabond, an exact, and yet rigorous, distinguishing them from fixed, metric, and formal essences. We have seen that these vague essences are as distinct from formed things as they are from formal essences. They constitute fuzzy aggregates. They relate to a corporeality, materiality, that is not to be confused either with an intelligible formal essentiality or a sensible formed and perceived thinghood. This corporeality has two characteristics. On the one hand, it is inseparable from passages to the limits as changes of state, which, from processes of deformation or transformation, which operate in a space-time itself, an exact, and act in the manner of events, ablation, adjunction, projection. On the other hand, 
it is inseparable from expressive or intensive qualities, which can be a higher or lower in degree, and are produced in the manner of variable affects, resistance, hardness, weight, colour. There is thus an ambulant coupling, effects, affects, which constitutes the vague corporeal essence, and is distinct from the sedentary linkage. Quote, fixed essence properties deriving therefore therefrom in the thing. Fixed essence properties deriving therefrom in the thing. End quote. Doubtless Husserl had a tendency to make the vague essence a kind of intermediary between the essence and the sensible, between the thing and the concept, a little like the Kantian schema. Is not roundness a schematic or vague essence, intermediary between rounded sensible things and the conceptual essence of the circle? In effect, roundness exists only as an affect threshold, neither flat nor pointed, and as a process limit, becoming rounded. Through sensible things and technical agents, millstone, lathe, wheel, spinning wheel, socket. But it is only, quote-unquote, intermediary to the extent that what is intermediary is autonomous, initially stretching itself between things and between thoughts to establish a whole new relation between thoughts and things, a vague identity between the two. Certain distinctions proposed by Simondon can be compared to those of Husserl, for Simondon exposes the technological insufficiency of the matter-form model in that it assumes a fixed form and a matter deemed homogeneous. It is the idea of the law that assures the model's coherence, since laws are what submit matter to this or that form, and conversely realise in matter a given property deduced from the form. But Simondon demonstrates that the hylomorphic model leaves many things, active and affective, by the wayside. On the one hand, to the formed or formable matter we must add an entire energetic materiality in movement, carrying singularities or hecaities that are already like implicit, topological rather than geometrical forms, and which combine with processes of deformation. For example, the variable undulations and torsions of the fibres, guiding the operation of splitting wood. On the other hand, to the essential properties of the matter deriving from the formal essence, we must add variable intensive affects, now resulting from the operation, now on the contrary making it possible. For example, Wood that is more or less porous, more or less elastic and resistant. At any rate, it is a question of surrendering to the wood, then of following where it leads by connecting operations to a materiality, instead of imposing a form upon a matter. What one addresses is less a matter submitted to laws than a materiality possessing a nomos. One addresses lesser form capable of imposing properties upon a matter 
than material traits of expression constituting affects. Of course, it is always possible to translate into a model that which escapes the model. Thus, one may link the materiality to power, puissance, of variation to laws adapting a fixed form and a constant matter to one another. But this cannot be done without a distortion which consists in uprooting variables from their state of continuous variation in order to extract from them fixed points and constant relations. Thus one throws the variables off, even changing the nature of the equations which cease to be imminent to matter movement. In equations, add equations. The question is not to know if such a translation is conceptually legitimate, it is, but only to know what intuition gets lost in it. In short, what Simondon criticises the hylomorphic model for is taking form and matter to be two terms defined separately, like the ends of two half chains whose connection can no longer be seen like a simple variation of moulding behind which there is a perpetually variable, continuous modulation that it is no longer possible to grasp. The critique of the hylomorphic schema is based on, quote, the existence between form and matter of a zone of medium and intermediary dimension, end quote, of energetic molecular dimension, a space unto itself that deploys its materiality through matter, a number unto itself that propels its traits through form. We always get back to this definition. The machinic phylum is materiality, natural or artificial, and both simultaneously. It is matter in movement, in flux, in variation, matter as a conveyor of singularities and traits of expression. This has obvious consequences, namely this matter flow can only be followed. Doubtless the operation which consists in following can be carried out in one place. An artisan who planes follows the wood, the fibres of the wood without changing location. But this way of following is only one particular sequence in a more general process, for the artisan is obliged to follow in another way as well. In other words, to go find the wood where it lies, and to find the wood with the right kinds of fibres. Otherwise he must have it brought to him. It is only because the merchant takes care of one segment of the journey in reverse that the artisan can avoid making the trip himself. But the artisan is complete only if he is also a prospector, and the organisation that separates the prospector, the merchant and the artisan already mutilates the artisan in order to make a quote-unquote worker of him. We will therefore define the artisan as he who is determined in such a way as to follow a flow of matter, a machinic phylum. He is the itinerant, the ambulant. To follow the flow of matter is to itinerate, to ambulate. It is intuition in action. Of course, there are second-order itinerancies where it is no longer a flow of matter that one prospects and follows, but, for example, a market 
Nevertheless, it is always a flow that is followed, even if the flow is not always that of matter, and above all there are secondary itinerancies. These are itinerancies which derive from another condition. Quote-unquote condition, even if they are necessarily entailed by it. For example, a transhumant, whether a farmer or an animal raiser changes land after it is worn out or else seasonally, but he only secondarily follows a land flow because he undertakes a rotation meant from the start to return him to the point from which he left. After the forest has regenerated, the land has rested, the weather has changed. The transhumant does not follow a flow, he traces a circuit. Of the flow, he only follows that part which enters into the circuit, even an ever-widening one. The transhumant is therefore itinerant only consequentially, or becomes itinerant only when his circuit of land or pasture has become exhausted, or when the rotation has become so wide that the flows escape the circuit. Even the merchant is a transhumant, to the extent that mercantile flows are subordinated to the rotation between a point of departure and a point of arrival. Go get, bring back. Import, export. Buy, sell. Whatever the reciprocal implications, there are considerable differences between a flow and a circuit. The migrant, as we have seen, is something else again. And the nomad is not primarily defined as an itinerant, or as a transhumant, nor as a migrant, even though he becomes these consequentially. The primary determination of the nomad is that he occupies and holds a smooth space. It is this aspect that determines him as nomad, essence. On his own account, he will be a transhumant, or an itinerant, only by virtue of the imperatives imposed by the smooth spaces. In short, whatever the de facto mixes between nomadism, itinerancy, and transhumance, the primary concept is different in the three cases. Smooth space, matter flow, rotation. It is only on the basis of the distinct concept that we can make a judgment on the mix, on when it is produced and on the form in which it is produced and on the order in which it is produced. But in the course of the preceding discussion, we have wandered from the question, why is the machinic phylum, the flow of matter, essentially metallic or metallurgical? Here again it is only the distinct concept that can give us an answer, in that it shows that there is a special primary relationship between itinerance and metallurgy, deterritorialization. However, the examples we took from Husserl and Simenden concerned wood and clay as well as metals. And besides, are there not flows of grass, water, herds, which flow, form so many phylums or matters in movement? It is easier for us to answer these questions now, for it is as if metal and metallurgy imposed upon and raised to consciousness something that is only hidden or buried in the other matters and operations. 
The difference is that elsewhere the operations take place between two thresholds, one of which constitutes the matter prepared for the operation, and the other the form to be incarnated, for example, the clay and the mould. The hylomorphic model derives its general value from this, since the incarnated form that marks the end of an operation can serve as the matter for a new operation. But in a fixed order marking a succession of thresholds, in metallurgy, on the other hand, the operations are always astride the thresholds, so that an energetic materiality overspills the prepared matter, and a qualitative deformation or transformation overspills the form. For example, quenching follows forging and takes place after the form has been fixed. Or to take another example, in moulding, the metallurgist in a sense works inside the mould. Or again, steel that is melted and moulded later undergoes a series of successive decarbonations. Finally, metallurgy has the option of melting down and reusing a matter to which it gives an ingot form. The history of metal is inseparable from this very particular form, which is not to be confused with either a stock or a commodity. Monetary value derives from it. More generally, the metallurgical idea of the reducer expresses this double liberation of a materiality in relation to a prepared matter, and of a transformation in relation to the form to be incarnated. Matter and form have never seemed more rigid than in metallurgy, and yet the succession of forms tends to be replaced by the form of a continuous development. The variability of matter tends to be replaced by the matter of a continuous variation. If metallurgy has an essential relation with music, it is not only by virtue of the sounds of the forge, but of the tendency within both arts to bring into its own, beyond separate forms, a continuous development of form, and beyond variable matters, a continuous variation of matter. A widened chromaticism sustains both music and metallurgy. The musical smith was the first transformer. In short, what metal and metallurgy bring to light is a life inherent to matter, a vital state of matter as such, a material vitalism that doubtless exists everywhere, but is ordinarily hidden or covered, rendered unrecognisable, dissociated by the hylomorphic model. Metallurgy is the consciousness or thought of the matter flow, the metal that and metal, the correlate of this consciousness. As expressed in pan-metallism, metal is coextensive to the whole of matter, and the whole of matter to metallurgy. Even the waters, the grasses and varieties of wood, the animals, are populated by salts and mineral elements. Not everything is metal, but metal is everywhere. Metal is the conductor of all matter. The machinic phylum is metallurgical, or at least has a metallic head as its itinerant probe head or guidance device. And thought is born more from metal than from stone. Metallurgy is minor science in person. Vague science, or the phenomenology of matter,
the prodigious idea of non-organic life. The very same idea Vorringer considered the barbarian idea par excellence was the invention, the intuition of metallurgy. Metal is neither a thing nor an organism, but a body without organs. The northern or gothic line is above all a mining or metallic line delimiting this body. The relation between metallurgy and alchemy does not, as Jung believed, repose on the symbolic value of metal and its correspondence with an organic soul, but on the imminent power, puissance, of corporeality in all matter, and on the esprit de corps accompanying it. The first and primary itinerant is the artisan, but the artisan is neither the hunter, the farmer, nor the animal raiser. Neither is he the winnower or the potter, who only secondarily takes up craft activity. Rather, the artisan is he who follows the matter flow as pure productivity, therefore in mineral form and not in vegetable or animal form. He is not the man of the land or of the soil, but of the subsoil. Metal is the pure productivity of matter. So he who follows metal is the producer of objects par excellence. As demonstrated by V. Gordon Child, the metallurgist is the first specialised artisan, and in this respect forms a collective body, secret societies, guilds, journeyman's associations. The artisan metallurgist is the itinerant, because he follows the matter flow of the subsoil. Of course, the metallurgist has relations with the others, those of the soil, land and sky. He has relations with the farmers of the sedentary communities, and with the celestial functionaries of the empire who overcode those communities. In fact, he needs them to survive. He depends on an imperial agricultural stockpile for his very sustenance. But in his work, he is in relation with the forest dwellers and partially depends on them. He must establish his workshop near the forest in order to obtain the necessary charcoal. In his space, he is in relation with the nomads, since the subsoil unites the ground of smooth space and the land of striated space. There are no mines in the alluvial valleys of the empire-dominated farmers. It is necessary to cross deserts, approach the mountains, and the question of control over the mines always involves nomadic peoples. Every mine is a line of flight, which is in communication with smooth spaces. Today there are equivalents in the problems with oil. Archaeology and history remain strangely silent on this question of the control over the mines. There have been empires with a strong metallurgical organisation that had no mines. The Near East lacked tin, so necessary for the fabrication of bronze. Large quantities of metal arrived in ingot form and from far away, for instance tin from Spain, or even from Cornuai. So complex a situation implies not only a strong imperial bureaucracy, 
and elaborate long-distance commercial circuits. It implies a shifting politics in which states confront an outside, in which very different peoples confront one another, or else come to some accommodation, particular aspects of the control of mines. Extraction, charcoal, workshops, transportation. It is not enough to say that there are wars and mining expeditions, or to invoke a, quote, Eurasian synthesis of the nomadic workshops from the approaches of China to the tip of Brittany, end quote, and remark that, quote, the nomadic populations had been in contact with the principal metallurgical centres of the ancient world since prehistoric times, end quote. What is needed is a better knowledge of the nomads' relations with these centres, with the smiths they themselves employed or frequented, with properly metallurgical peoples or groups who were their neighbours. What was the situation in the Caucasus and in the Altai, in Spain and North Africa? Mines are a source of flow, mixture and escape with few equivalents in history. Even when they are well controlled by an empire that owns them, the case of the Chinese Empire, the case of the Roman Empire, there is a major movement of clandestine exploitation and of miners' alliances, either with nomad and barbarian incursions or peasant revolts. The study of myths, and even ethnographic considerations on the status of smiths, divert us from these political questions. Mythology and ethnology do not have the right method in this regard. It is too often asked how the others react to the smith. As a result, one succumbs to the usual platitudes about the ambivalence of feelings. It is said that the smith is simultaneously honoured, feared and scorned. More or less scorned among the nomads, more or less honoured among the sedentaries. But this loses sight of the reasons for the situation, of the specificity of the smith himself of the non-symmetrical relations he enters with the nomads and the sedentaries, the types of affects he invents, metallic affect. Before looking for the feelings of others toward the smith, it is necessary to evaluate the smith himself as an other. As such, he has different affective relations with the sedentaries and the nomads. There are no nomadic or sedentary smiths. The smith is ambulant, itinerant. Particularly important is the in respect. Particularly important in this respect is the way in which the smith lives. His space is neither the striated space of the sedentary, nor the smooth space of the nomad. The smith may have a tent. He may have a house. He inhabits them in the manner of an ore bed, shelter, home, mineral deposit. Like metal itself. In the manner of a cave or a hole. A hut, half or all underground. They are cave dwellers not by nature, but by artistry and need. A splendid text by Eli Fowler evokes the infernal progress of the itinerant peoples of India 
as they bore holes in space and create the fantastic forms corresponding to these breakthroughs, the vital forms of non-organic life. A long quote here. There, at the shore of the sea, at the base of the mountain, they encountered a great wall of granite. Then they all entered the granite. In, it, in its shadows they lived, loved, worked, died, were born. And three or four centuries afterward they came out again, leagues away, having traversed the mountain. Behind them they left the emptied rock, its galleries hollowed out in every direction, its sculptured, chiselled walls, its natural or artificial pillars turning into a deep lacework with 10,000 horrible or charming figures. Here man confesses unresistingly his strength and his nothingness. He does not exact the affirmation of a determined ideal from form. He extracts it rough from formlessness, according to the dictates of the formless. He utilises the indentations and accidents of the rock. End quote. Metallurgical India Transpierce the mountains instead of scaling them. Excavate the land instead of striating it. Bore holes in space instead of keeping it smooth. Turn the earth into Swiss cheese. An image from the film Strike by Eisenstein presents a holy space where a disturbing group of people are rising. Reader's note. Holy as in having holes in it. I'm sure you got that. A holy space where a disturbing group of people are rising, each emerging from his hole as if from a field mined in all directions. The sign of Cain is the corporeal and affective sign of the subsoil. Passing through both the striated land of sedentary space and the nomadic ground of smooth space, without stopping at either one. The vagabond sign of itinerancy. The double theft and double betrayal of the metallurgist who shuns agriculture at the same time as animal raising. Must we reserve the name Cainite for these metallurgical peoples who haunt the depths of history? Prehistoric Europe was crisscrossed by the Battleaxe people, who came in off the steps like a detached metallic branch of the nomads, and the people known for their bell-shaped pottery, the Beaker people originating in Andalusia, a detached branch of megalithic agriculture. Strange peoples. Dolichocephalics and Brachycephalics who mix and spread across all Europe. Are they the ones who kept up the mines? boring holes in European space from every direction, constituting our European space. The smith is not nomadic among the nomads, and sedentary among the sedentaries, nor half-nomadic among the nomads, half-sedentary among sedentaries. His relation to others results from his internal itinerancy, from his vague essence, and not the reverse. It is in his specificity. It is by virtue of his itinerancy, by virtue of his inventing a holy space 
that he necessarily communicates with the sedentaries and with the nomads and with others besides, with the transhumant forest dwellers. He is in himself double, a hybrid, an alloy, a twin formation. As Griola says, the Dogon smith is not someone impure, but mixed. It is not because he is mixed that he is endogamous, that he does not intermarry with the pure who have a simplified progeny while he reconstitutes a twin progeny. Childer demonstrates that the metallurgist is necessarily doubled, that he exists two times, once as someone captured by and maintained within the apparatus of the Oriental Empire, again in the Aegean world as someone much more mobile and much freer. But the two segments cannot be separated, simply by relating each of them to their particular context. The metallurgist belonging to an empire, the worker, presupposes a metallurgist prospector, however far away, and the prospector ties in with a merchant who brings the metal to the first metallurgist. In addition, the metal is worked on by each segment, and the ingot form is common to them all. We must imagine less separate segments than a chain of mobile workshops constituting from hole to hole a line of variation, a gallery. Thus the relation of the metallurgist to the nomads and the sedentaries also passes via the relations he has with other metallurgists. This hybrid metallurgist, a weapon and toolmaker, communicates with the sedentaries and with the nomads at the same time. Holy space itself communicates with smooth space and striated space. In effect, the machinic phylum, or the metallic line, passes through all of the assemblages. Nothing is more deterritorialized than matter movement. But it is not at all in the same way. And the two communications are not symmetrical. Voringer, in the domain of aesthetics, said that the abstract line took on two quite different expressions, one in barbarian Gothic art, the other in an organic classical art. Here we would say that the phylum simultaneously has two different modes of liaison. It is always in connection with nomad space, where it conjugates with sedentary space. On the side of the nomadic assemblages and war machines, it is a kind of rhizome, with its gaps, detours, subterranean passages, stems, openings, traits, holes, etc. On the other side, the sedentary assemblages and state apparatuses effect a capture of the phylum, put the traits of expression into a form or a code, make the holes resonate together, plug up the lines of flight, subordinate the technological operation to the work model, impose upon the connections a whole regime of arborescent conjunctions.